And welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be looking at Philip K. Dick's brilliant story, The World She Wanted. It's a lot of fun. It's got a lot of interesting philosophy in it, and it's it's, it's got a lot to think about, actually. Um, it's got a great introduction, too. So I'm, I'm, I'll, well, I'll get to that in a moment. So this was first published in Science Fiction Quarterly in May 1953. It was part of this huge year of 1953 for Philip K. Dick, where he published something like two dozen stories and really got his career going. Um, he didn't publish his first novel to 1955, but by then he already had dozens of dozens of stories published uh, across the science fiction magazines that were so popular in the in the early 1950s. So uh, the story, The World She Wanted, um, the title gives away a lot. It's, a, it's about a woman who can manipulate the world she lives in. Um, we start with, uh, we meet our character, Larry Brewster, and he's getting drunk at the wind-up bar. He's listening to a Dixieland jazz combo. It's a really fascinating introduction, and I, I wonder if this would ever work kind of as a, as a pickup line or some kind of variant on what happens. Um, he's really happy with being drunk. He's really happy with how his cigarette butts and empty beer bottles are arranged around him. So he's just this guy all alone at a bar playing with the cigarette butts, playing with the bottles, playing with the ashtray. Not really a very impressive figure, uh, but maybe thinking good about himself. And then, of course, a beautiful woman sitting across from him begins talking to him. So suddenly this, you know, the whole night is is salvaged, I suppose, in his mind. And she corrects a statement he makes where he makes some exaggerated statement about Buddhist heaven. Um, So what he says, he's just talking to himself. He's a bit drunk. He says, this is Nirvana, or at least the seventh level of Zen Buddhist heaven. It comes off as a bit pretentious, but then the, the woman, the good-looking woman who's in the room, you know, corrects him saying, well, there aren't seven levels in the Buddhist heaven. I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, Dick knew something about Buddhism. So he's corrected. Now, the woman is Allison Holmes. And she's, of course, good looking. She's talking to him in the bar. It's, it's, it's that kind of setting. You can imagine it's all smoky, maybe. Well, what is she wearing? I guess it doesn't matter. Um, how, how does Dick explain the, the girl slipped out of her coat, revealing full rounded breasts and supple figure. So that's about as much of a description we get of her. But her name is Allison Holmes. And she begins to start explaining to Larry that he doesn't really exist or, or saying that he exists simply for her benefit. And she explains that this is the best possible world for her. And they start to sort through various philosophical positions. He suggests, well, are you talking about Herbert Spencer? They talk about Rene Descartes, where consciousness lies and all that. Now, my understanding is that the best possible world's thesis was not innovated by Herbert Spencer. In fact, I never heard of it coming from Spencer before. I always thought it was Leibniz who talked about this. And what Leibniz was doing with the best possible world position was trying to argue that, argue the problem of evil away, saying it's not that God could have possibly eliminate all evil, right? It's the world he creates is the best possible world, and that explains away the problem of evil for Leibniz. Anyways, um, 
Allison goes farther than saying that. She says, this is the best possible world for me because this is my world and I'm in control of this world. And so what we have there is a type of solipsism in which this world is completely created for her benefit, but she doesn't deny that there are other worlds for other people. But in this particular world, everyone exists for her own pleasure and benefit. And that includes Larry. Each person has their own private world. Um, I don't know if they, they, I don't think they interact even. It's just so in this world, Larry is almost, at least in Allison's view, an automaton. Now, this is just kind of a goofy barroom conversation at this point. Now, the two end up spending the night out and strange coincidences, coincidences take place, always in Allison's favor, really supporting the thesis that this world is Allison's world. It's the best possible world for her. The drinks at the bar end up being free because it's the boss's birthday. Uh, the corsage store is open late so he, she can get a corsage. Allison's win money at an illegal gambling den and they go through various events and it's always in Allison's benefit. Um, and then Allison explains to Larry at the end of the night that they are supposed to be married. On his way home, Allison tells Larry that they'll spend all day together and it will be their day, our day. She, I think she uses the word our day, even though based on her own you know, view of the world, it should be her day. Larry insists that he has to go to work, but Allison says, don't worry, you'll be with me all day. And inside, Larry finds a note from his boss explaining that he's going to have to start a two-week vacation and therefore he won't have to go to work um, the next day. So Allison shows up at the house the next day at 10 a.m., and she tells him that she just inherited a house. Larry is skeptical, uh, suggesting that Allison is just interpreting good fortune as a personal best possible world. Allison describes how she developed her theory. She says, history shows provincial events happening to people, yet you still have the problem of evil. So how can one's life be uncannily lucky? How can good things happen to individuals when objectively you see the suffering of the world so horrendous? I guess one way of thinking about this is, you know, every day you open up the newspaper and you see obituaries, but you don't die or you see horrible things happening to you and they never happen to you. You know, the bombing, a bombing kills other people, it doesn't kill you. So as long as you live, it seems that you're always being lucky. It's not really philosophically sound and it doesn't really pass um, the basic tests, but Allison is so charming and so convincing and of course, I, I think her beauty certainly has a, a role in, in convincing Larry to at least accept her, her thesis. She says if this is the objective best possible world, suffering would not exist at all. Well, I think that's Larry's response. A creator could evade the problem of evil by creating the best possible world for, for everyone, right? And so here's a challenge to Allison presented by Larry that why don't you then create the best possible world for everyone? Histories uh, may overlap in these worlds, she says, um, because they exist only for the person while alive, and thus those other people have no past. That is, if I meet someone, that person only exists from the moment I meet them. They don't have a past outside of memory. And I'm thinking ahead to some other of Dick's works where he talks about robots this way. Robots may have a program past, but not a real past. Um, and maybe this is uh, that idea is developed through robotics later on. The house that Allison inherits is massive. It has all these exotic plants imported from the South Seas. And Larry says, let's go back to the windup. Let's go back to the bar. And it's radically changed. It has changed from a dive bar, a rundown 
trashy dive bar into a vibrant, classy establishment. Allison explains that it was changed by the owner on her own recommendations. I don't know if that was a psychic thing or if she just used her her power of controlling this world to make it her own. They end up leaving the wind-up. Larry explains to Allison that he's going to break up with her, that their one-day relationship is over. Allison insists that this is not possible because he exists in her world solely for the benefit of giving her pleasure. Larry retorts that Allison is too much trouble and a ball of light carries her away, returning her, Larry says, to his own world. So at some point in the narrative, we flip from Allison's world to Larry's world. And so Larry, by accepting this best possible world thesis at some point, is able to then use his consciousness to lay claim to this world as his own. So that's the plot summary of the story. Well, what to do with this story? Well, one thing to say is that there's a lot in this story that shows up later on in Dick's tales. And I've been saying that a lot in these early series, but it's just when I come back to review these stories, I'm so, you know, pretty amazed at how much of Dick's philosophy, worldview, and ideas are laid down in these stories written in 1952. Most of them were published in 1953, and you had, well, in those two years, 1953 and 54, you have the bulk of the story, the, you know, I think 60% of his stories are published in those two years, and they really lay out so much that's going to be later on in the stories. It's not that Dick's lazy, it's just he's fairly consistent in his ideas, and you know, I think he does have a change in the 70s, but that period from the 50s to 60s is pretty consistent and it's kind of laid out here. So the question is, are we the victims of these malevolent forces that control the world for their own nefarious purposes or do we have control over our lives and destinies? To put it more simply, are we fated or are we free? And if we're fated, are we fated just because the world is natural and or, or, or random? I mean, the world is random or are we fated because someone is out to get us? Right. In the world she wanted, we have both at once. We are fated in the sense we are subject to Allison's world and have to do what she wants. And we're also free. We're also free to turn the table on her. Allison certainly thinks that we're fated, or at least the people in her world are fated to her will. But this only works with this very creepy dictatorship she seems to construct. There's no individual autonomy for Allison. And she or her autonomy is the autonomy of the slave master, right? Everyone is a slave to her will, and she is the center of the universe, right? So she is, in a sense, Thomas Jefferson in the plantation with, you know, all the slaves basically existing to, you know, accept his, his will. Now, it could be any slave master, not just Jefferson, but he's the one who popped in my mind. Of course, she also believes that everyone is a dictator, so that's how she justifies it. She says... Yeah, you're all my slaves. You have to do what I want to make me happy. But that's okay because I'm. you're also a dictator somewhere. So it's, it's kind of even Steven. But that's a situation that Allison is ultimately indifferent to. She is the master of this world. Everyone is fated to her will. will. Quote, better think about it before you talk off. You exist for my benefit, Mr. Brewster. This is my world. Remember that. Maybe in your own world, things are different, but this is my world, and in my world, things do as I say. So is this outburst how the bosses see the world? 
I think Dick has a lot to teach us, or at least a lot of questions about the ruling class and how the ruling class see the world. And this idea of the ability to manipulate a world to one's own purposes comes up quite a lot. It's in a story called Small Town. It's in Ubik. It's in The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. It's in The Trouble with Bubbles. And those are just the ones off the top of my head. There's a bunch of stories and novels the world Jones made too. There's a bunch of these in which this idea of the ruling class being able to simply manipulate the world as they see fit. Right. It's almost like the ultimate. We're the ultimate urban planner, or at least the ruling class could be the ultimate ur urban planner. Switching geographies, changing people out, um, whatever the purpose may be, it's often at our expense. It may, it, at the most basic, it's the expense of our uncertainty about where we are at any one moment. But more broadly, it can be quite, or, or more, you know, it can be quite nasty. You know, much more nasty. Uh, in when when this these games the ruling class play actually you know harm us the consequences of Allison's total autonomy is not like those of the ruling class's decision-making power in our world right they may acknowledge spaces where the underclass working people the poor have agency they might say it's the family or in the quad yearly elections or in their bowling leagues or whatever they may say yeah they have a real world but they don't actually believe that Right? In the workplace, in the market, at the end of the day, in government, global capital and diplomacy, they're in charge. And our will doesn't really matter. And we, we exist merely to serve them. In this sense, we are all fated by systems that are outside of our control. Allison remodels businesses. In a sense, she gentrifies Larry's favorite dive bar. Right? And I don't know if we've ever had this experience happen. A place you really like it might be a little run down a little divish but it was your place right and then it gets someone buys it up and remakes it and then it becomes you know trash gentrified trash she can get money whenever she wants which is certainly how the one percent see the world right they, they don't see money as real because they don't have to really work to make it it just shows up in their bank account almost if by magic now, it's not really directly stated here that Allison is a member of the ruling class, but I, I think she sort of acts that way. Now, we see at the beginning and the end of the story, Larry having creativity. Now, the first example of creativity is very mundane. Now, he's remaking cigarettes and bottles on his at his bar stool. Does Allison see this? Is this for Allison's benefit? If we suppose we're in Allison's world from the very first line of the of the story, does Allison make him create the cigarettes in that pattern, put the beer bottles in that pattern to because that's what she wants? Or are we at that moment in Larry Brewster's version of reality and he's constantly switching back and forth? It's not clear where we make the shift from Allison's world to Larry's world. Are they overlapping? Are we in Larry's world then in Allison's world when she steps forth and decides to flirt with Larry? Maybe it's the moment when he talks about the Buddhist heaven. Maybe in Allison's world, what she says about Buddhist heaven is correct. But when Larry spoke it, he was still in Larry's world and therefore was correct by his logic and his understanding of the world. Were we ever in Allison's world or was this all Larry's projections? I mean, that's entirely possible too, right? Um, Larry, certainly it's a pretty girl talking to him at the bar, certainly something that he would have liked. And it was to his benefit in a way, right? He had a nice day with this this woman until he decided to get rid of her. So it might be we're always in in Larry's 
world. You know, it could be, I guess, it's, well, these people are crazy. That's always an option in Dick's stories, right? The ending suggests that Larry was keeping Allison in his world to sustain his interest. And this is what he says at the end of the story, quote, In some ways he liked her. For a while she had been fun. Well, she was off now. In this world, Allison Holmes had never been completely real. But he had known her. What Larry had called Allison Holmes wasn't, wasn't any more than a partial appearance of her. Okay, so that there's there's several things you can do with this story, and it's a lot of fun. I really like this idea. Uh, I think it can work just as a nice story of of two competing realities, and we can play with this game of are we switching between realities, or is it all Allison, or is it all Larry? I think you can make a case for both. But I think there's actually a political argument here as well, and I'm not sure how consciously Dick was making it, but. Remember, Dick is coming out of the 1950s. He's coming out of the the Levittowns. He's coming out of this post-world world of mass consumerism. And we're going to see more stories that deal directly with consumerism. But the fakeness, the artificiality of this world is something that really bothered Philip Dick, especially in his early writings. Um, so we'll come back to these themes, certainly, in upcoming episodes. Well, thank you so much for listening. Um, you can rate, share, subscribe. If, if you like this episode, you might like my 100 Pages podcast where I you know, look at other American writers more broadly using the Library of America as my source material. That's I'm issuing episodes of that concurrently with the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Um, but if you just want to listen to the Philip K. Dick stuff, I'll continue to release stuff about two a week in this in this series. So thank you so much. So our next episode is, I think, The Infinites. Um, but I'll have to double check. But anyways, thank you so much for listening. See you next time.